Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is uh, June 28th when you're listening to this. Uh, it's the 26th when we're recording. Today is just me this week uh, with my guest. He's been a guest on the show before. His name's Daryl Owens. He's my neighbor here in Berkeley. Not actual neighbor, but, you know, I think we live, what, a mile away from each other, would you say? I mean, I'm a couple feet down the hill than you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Daryl and I are going to talk about um, the new UCSF Benioff Housing and Homelessness uh, Institute or Association. I forget. What, what's, the, what's the actual name of the last part of it? Is it an institute? Uh, UCS, UCSF, uh, the Benioff. I mean, I always call it the Benioff Institute. Right, right. And this is an <laughs> institute that, that uh, has done a lot of great, I think, research on housing and homelessness for the past few years. It's something that, you know, I don't know. It, it seems to be interested in answering some questions in ways in which I think, you know, like whatever data-driven or evidence-related type of stuff that you can find on this, um, there's a good chance if it's dealing with the Bay Area that it probably came from this institute at some point, or at least was went through somebody who works there. And so we're going to talk about it. And um, yeah, that's about it. I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a lot to talk about in this report. And we haven't really talked about this issue in a while. And Daryl is somebody who I trust quite a bit on this topic. And uh, Daryl, yeah, also congratulations, Daryl is a brand new, what, graduate of, of uh, you just graduated from college, right? Yeah, UCSC, uh, UC Santa Cruz, got my computer science degree, which is always really funny to people as a big curveball because they think I'm going to go in for urban planning. And I'm like, no, uh, this was always a side quest. I, this is not my this was not my main interest, but it kind of became my main interest. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about it a little bit the first time you came here, but just to introduce people to who you are, like, you know, on you're somebody who has quite a big presence on Twitter, but also within local politics, I would say here in the East Bay, um, you know, it's something that I learned quite a bit when I first moved here about three years ago. Um, and I was looking into a lot of the local politics stuff. Obviously, everything was very, very affected by the pandemic, but there was a lot of housing stuff that was going on in Berkeley and Oakland. And one name kept popping up. And then I was like, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> who, is he? who is he? <laughs> Who's this mysterious man? And then it turns out, you know, um, you know, as a very young person, you know, compared to me at least. Right. And yeah, I'm 26 um, now, but when I got like, started, I was like 19. Yeah. Yeah. And that somebody who has put a lot of thought and effort into how to solve some of these housing issues. And for you, it was in, in some ways it's personal, right? Can you just like tell, tell the audience, like what, what part of it is personal for you? I think that I started getting more involved into housing because my own family was dealing with housing problems. Um, most of my family left Berkeley mostly because they couldn't afford to live here anymore. Um, and I came from a like middle-class family, a black neighborhood, and it was changing. Um, but it turns out that through my research, it had always been changing for a long time. And like most local kids growing up in Berkeley, I'd always been curious about the homeless problem, um, which I have now realized has been a problem for decades. It's actually not changed that much, which is something that uh, a lot of people don't realize about homelessness, uh, although it's definitely gotten worse in a, in a macro context, especially in this region. Um, but uh, this has been a problem that's gone on for a while. And uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's just get right into it. You know, like, I think that I was really interested in this summary, just because a in the way it was, it was conducted, 
and in the way in which it sort of marketed itself. And I would say it marketed itself somewhat effectively, which is that like this was a huge survey that was done more or less, right? And they say that it is the biggest uh, survey of, of people in California that are experiencing homelessness, I think is the way in which they say. So they say it is the, uh, it is a, conducted the California statewide survey of people experiencing homelessness is the official name of it. And that it is the largest representative study of homelessness since the mid 1990s. And the first large scale representative study to use mixed methods, which include surveys and in-depth interviews. And that, you know, like basically what they did was that they found about like about 3,200 people, right. Which, you know, is about, Given that the population in California, the homeless is about 171,000, that's not an insignificant number of people to have found to, you know, to survey this. It seems like it is a pretty good representative sample. They tried to find a representative sample across different types of homelessness, right? So like people who listen to the show probably know, but if you don't, like there are a lot of different types of homelessness. There are people who live in cars, for example. There are people who are short-term homeless, which they call, which, you know, people who might fall out of a housing situation for a few months and then they go back in, maybe they slip back out, like this called short-term homelessness. Then there's chronic homelessness for people who, I would say, well, I, I think that, I think like basically like it's a, if you're homeless for over a year, then perhaps you qualify as chronic homelessness over two years for sure. Um, and then there are people who live in encampments, which, you know, are the people that get all the attention for, you know, I guess somewhat understandable reasons, right? That, um, that people who, uh, the type of people who, you know, people who in San Francisco who are tech thought leaders, for example, are always mad about like, that's a different type of population of homelessness. This survey tried to talk to as many people across the different populations as possible. Am I, am I missing something in this like sort of? Yeah, it's a pretty representative sample. I mean, I think the survey took about 78% of their uh, sample was unsheltered homeless. Uh, basically right. people who live out on the streets or in vehicles and whatnot, uh, not necessarily people who have shelter, but it's just very unstable. Um, and I mean, the latest PPIC, that's the Public Policy Institute of California, um, survey found that the about the homeless population in California is about 70% unsheltered. So, I mean, this is this is all pretty proportional data. Um, right, it, right. Yeah. And that, that compared to like for people who are listening in New York or on the East Coast, you know, that number is actually quite important, given that if you think about the, um, the unsheltered population in California is many multiples higher, for example, than the population in New York City, right? Where New York City, I think at some point has like had over like 90% sheltered. Um, most of the cities on the East Coast, most of the homeless people do have are sheltered in some sort of way, which means that they're in a shelter system or they live in a congregate shelter or they live in some other form of temporary housing. Um, in California, that's not true, right? Like most of the homeless population is unsheltered. And so for this to have any sort of weight, and I think this is one of the things that we can sort of get into, which is that like, there's a, there's a great deal of skepticism around these types of studies because they generally, whatever opposite side you're on is going to say, well, you're only, you're only talking to a certain number of people, right? Like you're only talking to, uh, people who are in pretty good shape, or you're only talking to people who lost their rent because they or lost their housing because they were evicted. And like, that doesn't actually account for mental health and everything like that. Right. Um, but this, I think they tried their best to get a very representative sample. And, um, I don't know, like, it's hard to know without looking 
deep, deep, deep within this study. Like I read this whole study, I read the executive summary, et cetera, and I'm pretty familiar with some of this stuff, but it seems like this is about as good as it's going to get. Yeah. I mean, just to put that in comparison, uh, 55% of homelessness in San Francisco is unsheltered compared to about 21% of Manhattan. And I think that this is something that uh, the really good book, uh, Homelessness as a Housing Problem, has also pointed out, which is that uh, due to like certain laws in New York City, but also I think weather as well, there's just a lot more shelter beds available. Now, I'm not saying shelter beds are a solution to homelessness. They're not, but they definitely mitigate the worst aspects of it um, that you'll see in this report in terms of people experiencing like street harassment, sexual assault, violence. Of course, that still also happens in shelters, too, but it's not as bad as it is out on the street. Um, and the problem in California is that we just do not have anywhere close to the number of comparable shelter beds available. And there's also this kind of weird debate going on between sheltered versus housing first, which is which is a whole nother topic of discussion. Um, but yeah, I mean, this report is really comprehensive. And I think it's an interesting report, mostly because of what it will do in terms of the statewide discourse about homelessness. Okay, because, let's just let's jump into it. Like let's stop summarizing this thing now. What do you think it will yeah. do? Yeah. What what do you think? What cuz I've seen a lot of responses. I've seen, you know, Benioff himself, right, who people don't know is the founder of Salesforce, one of the richest people in the world. Um, he's the guy who bankrolls the Benioff, you know, um, homelessness and housing initiative. He was like, this is great. Right. Um, and I think he has a lot of sway within a lot of the tech circles that are mostly mad about this. And so, you know, I, I thought it was, I thought it was, if anything, a little bit hopeful that maybe somebody who can, who at least these people like will listen to is, you know, coming out with some data that, that seems to support some sort of solution. But how, how do you think this affects the discourse here? I do think that's kind of funny because, um, I mean, it, it, we, we say sort of tech broadly, and there are, of course, some like VC people who are super right. like reactionary about homelessness. Although I think the, the, the median tech worker is like pretty liberal. For sure. Um, for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, but like it, it is like that is like San Francisco's whole like nonprofit ecosystem. Like all groups are just like tech adjacent somehow, whether it's Benioff or Conway, any which right. way. Um but I mean, yeah, I think that, and I kind of hate to say it, I think the impacts of the report maybe in terms of the statewide discourse will be somewhat limited. Like, I'm just not going to sugarcoat it. There's a pretty obvious brewing backlash against homelessness that's brewing in the state. Um, it's been predicted for a while now. We're seeing it take head in many places with um, anti-encampment laws, um, even within San Francisco. Um, you know, we saw a backlash against the homeless in the mission against elected officials. I mean, by elected officials, um, there's talk of anti-encampment uh, bills in the legislature. I mean, there's there's a clear backlash that's happening. And the big headlines, if you saw the report in the news, was that most of the homeless are from California. They previously had residency right. in California. Nine out of I 10. Believe, right. Yeah, 90%. Um, and on one hand, that is a significant statistic, not because it gets repeated in like every point in time survey we have that the majority of people who have no housing previously had housing in an area that they are from usually. This is always presented as some big 
bombshell thing, but that's just how mobility works in every sector of society. The thing in California that we love to do in particular is pretend that all of our problems are the result of people moving into the state that's like changing our city and changing our yeah. neighborhoods. But this really isn't true, whether it's in housing or unsheltered or sheltered. Most people who move are just moving within their own metro region or oftentimes within their own city. Most people who live in uh, most people who got housing in a place or, or, or just moved into a new housing unit, for example, are people who previously lived in that city. Same thing with most homeless people, the, the people who were let down by the system, they were moving somewhere and they just didn't get a place. Um, so, I mean, yeah, most people are from here. The problem in California, we actually have the opposite problem where we're bleeding our low income populations. We're bleeding our population altogether because people can't afford to live here, according to PPIC research. So that is the big problem in California. And I think the executive summary talked a lot about the sort of musical chairs problem where, um, and, and to be fair, they didn't talk too much about the solutions. They cited research like homelessness right. is a housing problem, really good book, but they pointed out that we're stuck in a musical chair situation where we're not dealing with people coming in from other states being uh, here to be homeless or whatever. Um, we're actually dealing with the opposite problem, which is that we cannot retain our low income households. They either go to the streets or they go to Houston. Um, that's that's a problem that we're dealing with, right? So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's good to have out there. But to be real, I'm not super convinced that people who are anti-homeless actually care that most people are from here. Yeah, I don't think so either, actually. Like, I mean, it's like, so there's a sort of debate type of way you can think about it, right? Which is that our other neighbor here in Berkeley, you know, Michael Schellenberger, has put out uh, quite a narrative and it has had a lot of sway in terms of building this backlash that says that, hey, everybody who is a drug user who you see in the Tenderloin District in San Francisco, they're not actually from San Francisco, right? Like these are people who have come here to take advantage of, it's like he sort of paints it as like a, and I don't think I'm misquoting him in any sort of way, but he basically says it's like, if you're a meth addict or a fentanyl addict, then this is Disneyland for you, you know? Yeah, exactly. You've got to so. basically live on the street you live the drugs are really cheap they're right next to you you get to live in this encampment you have a bunch of other users who are around you nobody harasses you nobody picks you up off the street because the liberals have done have had way too lax uh anti-camping they've had way too lax anti-homeless laws and they've basically created what amounts to an op like you know it's like hamsterdam in the fucking wire except it's like half of a city like that's that that's a telling of what uh Somebody like Michael Schellenberger will say, and it's, it is a very na mainstream narrative now here in the, in the state, right? The evidence almost doesn't matter, right? Like who, like, I, I, I don't know. I, you know, I was writing about this, Daryl, and I, I sort of came to the same conclusion, which is just like, you know, like everybody talks about evidence-based, right? Like that's sort of the way in which a lot of the sort of progressive um, and also establishment people talk about this, right? You have Dean Preston or somebody like that saying like, I know he's not your favorite person, but like, you know, like he'll say like, you can't incarcerate your way out of this problem. You can't incarcerate drug users. The evidence says this. This is evidence-based, right? This, this, this report also like says evidence-based a lot as well, right? And the evidence is basically like, look, not all these, these people aren't all coming in to basically be part of like, you know, fentanyl Disney world. That's not what the evidence says, but I just don't know who that convinced. <laughs> That convinces, you know, it's just hard. Yeah. We're like so stuck right now. Yeah. It is hard. I will say that generally studies in general, having argued with people about evidence on a variety of other housing related topics, when people conveniently stop listening to evidence when it uh, doesn't suit their narrative, 
Um, but I, in my experience, the purpose of that evidence is usually to equip people who are capable of debating, talking, and having discussions against narratives like Schellenberger's that like this is the facts you should be equipped with. It's not really suit. It's not. It's not like stuff. It's not consumption for the general public, right? It, it's for experts to be able to articulate themselves right. in that way. Um, it, that was something I learned with like my vacancy report where I, I did a bunch of uh, research and, and explain how vacant housing works. And like, I didn't expect people to just take my report and throw it in their opponent's faces. I expected right. them to be equipped with the data to actually talk about it. And yeah, I, I think that in my experience, and um, I've, I've, I've been in this space for a, a, a while now when it comes to homeless housing. I used to work for Resources for Community Development, which is one of the most prolific uh, low-income housing providers in the East Bay, developers actually, uh, nonprofit developers out of Berkeley, California. Um, I have been to many um, homeless hotel conversion meetings. Right. Um, and uh, we have, I'm currently located in Fremont. There's one actually pretty close to me. I've heard this narrative about homeless people many, many, many times, and I've not really heard the narrative too much from rank and file public commenters that their issue is that they are or are not from California. Some people say that that's, that is something that they say, um, but it's just not a big deal to them. I think to most people who don't like the homeless or, or just are super reactionary, their main issue is they think they've made personal bad choices that right. they shouldn't right. have to subsidize. Right. And that's um, something that's very hard to you know deflate. But I agree with you. I think that there is a bit of a canard there, but you know, it, but I do think it's important in this way, right? Like, so London Breed, for example, uh, who is the mayor of San Francisco last week made a change in her policy. Like she did this meeting with Brooke Jenkins next to her. And she said that they were going to start, uh, if you're, if you get caught for drug possession twice, you know, in San Francisco and here, we're not talking about like drug possession when you're caught with drugs. If you're like a kid who lives in the sunset or the Richmond or something like that, this is people who are living in encampments and so much. Yeah, they don't mean rich people with cocaine and Pacific Heights. Yeah. Right. Right. Like they don't even mean like anything except for the homeless population. Right. That, um, they will refer you into, uh, like a secondary court system where you're sort of mandated to go get, uh, treatment. But, you know, even in her speech, right. She said that, of. Like she said, over a 10-day period, police arrested 58 people for drugs, and 28% of those people had arrest existing warrants. And then she says, only 8% of the people arrested were San Francisco residents, right? And so, like, it is interesting how politicians are kind of picking up on this narrative at all. Kind and, of a meaningless statement, though. Right, right. Okay, well, why is it meaningless in what way? You don't think that it means anything and that she, like, mentions this all the time, that, like, these aren't people who are actually from here? Yeah, because the people will be from, like, Oakland instead or Daly City. Right, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm not saying the substance of, of what she said. I'm saying more the uh, the fact that she feels the need to to remind people of this all the time, right? Like, she feels like it's a useful talking point in her favor. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. I, oh, no, I totally agree. It's a useful talking point. I'm just not convinced that taking the talking point down, which is necessary to do, it's a long road right. ahead, but I'm not convinced that like suddenly all the people who are opposing Project Room Key projects all over the Bay oh, Area yeah, and no. house homeless people are going to be, oh, never mind, you're from here? No. Yeah. We, well, what we basically have is that there's like this problem where it's like, I think that sometimes that people on the sort of evidence-based side of which, you know, i think that I am too, or at least I try to be as much as possible, that what they're basically fighting is like an emotional, you're fighting like people who are 
responding out of emotion and that if you think about it, like, yeah, there is like a lot of emotion around this issue and a lot of it is understandable, right? Like, I think that there are people like there is this way to cast everybody who's mad about this as being some sort of NIMBY reactionary who's just met, worried about their home housing prices. But I don't know, man, you know, like it is sometimes it is pretty difficult and visceral to watch people suffer in that type of way, right? Like to see sort of the expansion of these types of places. And, you know, some people I think probably have a visceral emotional reaction in a way that comes out of a sense of compassion, but their conclusion is still usually, you know, like we have to get rid of these encampments, right? Which, you know, I don't think that there's any, and they feel like the people who are on the evidence side or the housing side think that encampments are great. And outside of like a few very annoying people who I would say, you know, who are on Twitter, like, I don't, I, I haven't met a single person who thinks like encampments are good, right? Like that they're a good thing that should be around forever. And so I don't know, it's weird. There's so much like weird disconnects in this debate, right? Which, and in the way in which it's been polarized where people like literally misrepresent other people's positions quite a bit. There, there are some people who, they're so small and irrelevant. There, there right. are some people who think that like, under no circumstances should anybody who lives in an encampment be like put into like sheltered housing unless it's absolutely totally voluntary. And I'm like, okay. Um, but like the vast majority of like people who work in homelessness understand that like living in an encampment like completely lowers your chances of like living a long life, leaves you totally susceptible to many diseases and, and issues. And that being in sheltered housing is of course great. Now what that sheltered housing ends up being is very important. Um, and that's where another debate comes in about tiny homes and, and, um, hotel conversions, et cetera, et cetera, um, loss of possessions. And it's actually really interesting. I have so many stories actually about working in homeless housing and, and like trying to transition people from an unsheltered life, which is completely right. different than a sheltered life where they're like hoarding things constantly. There's like curfews that are mandated in new housing because they're so accustomed to like not having a like day night routine. And then there's like this conflict between being this like super paternal person that's like telling these grown adults how to live their lives and trying to readjust them back into society versus um, which, which like a lot of people who are antagonistic towards these programs, who again are a very tiny minority, are like, wow, you know, you're you're telling homeless people what to do. Like, why don't you just live their, let them live their lives? Versus the other people who are like, well, if we don't get their habits down, that ends up harming the the the, the recovery of people right. who are actually doing well and back on their stuff. You know, we in Berkeley there was this really like heartbreaking story of a man who had been homeless for many years and finally got housing, but because he he's so accustomed to that street life that he's out there, you know, making threats and doing things that are disrupting other people who are recovering back into sheltered life. And there's this debate between like should he be evicted, which is what the nonprofit's trying to do and he's ultimately back out on the street again or if there's some other way to solve this problem. So like it's a really interesting topic, but to be real most people who hate on homeless people and shelters and everything and all this stuff, the people who listen to Schellenberger um, don't care about any of this. I think that for a lot of them, they just don't want to see an encampment. And if it's out of sight, out of mind, it's not their problem anymore. And while I don't like any of their takes, I, I get to some degree where that emotion comes from. I mean, right. I'm not going to lie. When I, when I take BART through West Oakland and see like shanty towns all over the place, like that's crazy. Right. Like, that's awful. I don't want to see that. I, I wouldn't want to live in it, especially, but like, I don't want to see it. So, of course, I want to advance policies to make it happen. And I think for a lot of people, though, and this is where I think the homeless backlash comes in, there's this idea that it's these tent cities have been around 
since at least the Great Recession. They, they, they've they've really been a, a staple of the Bay Area's uh, urban fabric for about a little over a decade now. And as a result, I think people are getting a little bit fatigued with this feeling that with an increased cost of living, which they blame on taxes, but usually it's not taxes, um, that like they, they don't see any actual like visual changes. They actually see the problems getting worse in many cases, especially during the pandemic where we had this whole increase in antisocial right, activities. Right. And people are kind of like, you know what? Screw it. Just 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 get the encampments out of here. And that's what you know, you saw this with like like uh like what was it, the supervisor in the mission district, Hillary Ronan, who's ostensibly a progressive, but is talking like we we just dropping the hammer, like it, it's enough right. is enough, right? Right. Um and the sad part is, is that our homeless response has not been super good, uh, but we've not been very good at communicating why it hasn't been good, which is that at a high level, we don't have enough housing built. So homelessness will continue. Even as you plug certain holes, more holes will get you know popped as a result. Um, again, the report explains it like musical chairs. We're, we're giving people chairs and we don't have any more to give. So that's the like sort of overlying problem, which is the uh, housing shortage. And then the homeless services programs have been really scattershot, depending on which county you're in. They've not been coordinated at all. I think Alameda County has done a really substandard job at getting homeless people into housing. You also have tons of like overhead costs. These programs are not as efficient as they could be because to be real, a lot of them are administered by a bajillion different nonprofits. Right. We have no regional coordination. So like as soon as a homeless person in San Francisco gets on a bar train and goes to Oakland, it's it's not SF's problem anymore. This is something that like commonly happened um, when I think it, they, they passed an anti-homeless ordinance a couple of years ago. And then a lot of homeless people would just get pushed by the PD into BART. They would just go over to Oakland. That's when the Oakland encampment started appearing everywhere. Um, this is just a, it's, there's no regional coordination. You've got counties with drastically different budgets. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we need a Bay Area regional-wide homeless fund because, you know, extremely expensive cities with a lot of wealth like San Francisco dealing with the multi-billion biannual budget is trying to tackle homelessness the same way Oakland is. And Oakland doesn't have anywhere near the same size of that budget. Um, and, and, and then you've got other cities that are so expensive and are not doing anything to curb their expensiveness that they are, to some degree, kind of exporting housing problems onto the bigger cities. So, for example, like if you live in a wealthy community or a community that um, doesn't have a lot of protections like Marin County, which I know we associate as a super rich, white, wealthy community, right, but there right. are it's areas like, with right. like- Marin City, yeah. parts of San Rafael, like these are not- Particularly yeah, canal, areas, the canal right. area, right. all those places, a lot of trailer parks in Sonoma County too, right. you know, people get displaced and then they have the extreme anti-homeless ordinances. They're exporting their problems to the East Bay, to San Francisco. I don't care though. Like, let me be very clear about this. <laughs> I think this is something that I really need to communicate. I, I don't care if 90% of homeless people had housing in California before they became homeless or if 0% had it. It doesn't matter. They're living in the city. They're residents. Everyone who lives in, I mean, the whole point of a city is that people live there who were not living there before. It's an amalgamation of people. And it doesn't matter to me whether where someone lives or their, their nation of origin or their city of origin or whatever. We don't have this like birthright thing where like the city you had your problems in, you know, you must live there forever and ever and ever. That's not how cities work. Yeah, but Everyone that is moves. sort of the spirit of California in a lot of ways, I, I, right? I, it's like any of, place it, you live in, in in California, basically the first question is how long have you lived? 
have you lived here? Yeah, yeah, but that's the problem. Right? It is, the problem but is that's that how it. But I'm saying it. That's why it's used. I think because it triggers a type of emotional response from people that like that. Um, that does, I think, maybe make them a little bit more hardline than they might have been before. If they think that everybody is flying in here or taking a bus here to do a bunch of drugs, but like let let's move on a little bit from that point and talk about like the bigger thing that you were talking about, which is the coordination of response. Because like I do, I do kind of agree with you that like in terms of policy recommendations, which is a whole section in this paper, that it's pretty thin, right? Like it's basically just the housing first model um, saying we should increase access to housing affordable to extremely low income. I love how like these new like kind of word contraptions are also like grammatically impossible. It's like increase access to housing affordable to extremely low income housing. (laughs) Households like, why don't they just say increase access to low income housing? It's like, it's like, like, we call it MPIC speak, honestly, (laughs) but yeah. Like I have no idea what that means. It says expand (laughs) targeted. Uh, homeless prevention, which obviously is sort of financial support. And it's, it's that, that's actually one thing that I found kind of interesting, which is that the study found that a lot of people didn't know, like at the moment when they're like, fuck, I'm going to lose my housing because I don't have enough money to pay rent. I'm about to be evicted that they didn't know about the services that exist out there. Now that's totally understandable to me. You know, like I, I, I was actually surprised at the number who did know about it. Like the truth is that most people who are in these types of situations don't know about government programs that can help them for the very simple reason that that the vast majority of people in America don't know about government programs, period. You know, like yeah, I was going like, to say that. I was going to say that. It's not because they're poor. It's not because they're uneducated. Literally, like nobody knows what the government actually does and what services it provides outside of like they pick up your trash and like there's a library, right? Like outside of that, like you have no idea because these things aren't very well publicized. And so I think part of what they're saying is that like by design, you, though. Right, right, right. You have to like expand this and you have to let people know you have to make eviction protections a little bit better. The number three is provide robust supports to match the behavioral health needs of the population. That's just kind of like like uh, increasing access to low barrier mental health, substance abuse stuff. That's kind of like, I don't know, like, you know, like that's that that's I don't think that will placate the people who are mad, who think everything is about uh, mental health and and drugs. And then the fourth is increase household incomes through evidence based employment supports. OK, you know, I don't know what that means really either, except like people should get higher pay and increase outreach and service delivery to people experiencing homelessness. That is like, you know, stuff that is happening right now entirely through uh third-party nonprofits here in the Bay Area, like the service provider stuff is a real problem. Like you said, that was something that is, you know, that I'm particularly interested in, which is that like none of these places have enough staffing to do anything, you know, where they're just like, why don't we do this, right? Like that's sort of one of the things that is always put out there. Like, why don't we do program X? Why don't we do program Y? And it's just like, the problem isn't the money. The problem is like you have to actually find people who are going to do this thing, right? Like there's a lot of money in homelessness right now. There's not enough people to do a lot of the things that are being proposed. And then the last one is embed a racial equity approach in all aspects of homelessness through the system de- delivery. Like, you know, you can feel however way you want about it. But the fact that it's the last thing that they recommend feels like it's a little bit of an add on. You know? it, if they're getting there, like, because they, 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 they're, they're going to predict people are going to be like, have you talked about yeah, intersectionality yeah, 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 in this? Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, uh, here's our generic yeah, here we go. Okay. Number, number six, let's throw that shit out there. <laughs> yeah, like A little bit of advice to the writers of this executive summary, just make 
make it four, you know, don't make it six, <laughs> just like put it a little bit higher and then it won't be so obvious that it's your, that it's your tack on. But none of these, you know, like I, I actually was a little bit disappointed by this because like, not because I think that they are supposed to find the silver bullet or something like that, but it did just seem so much of like the normal type of way in which people think about this. What'd you think? What'd you think about these policy recommendations? Um, the, to be fair, I talked to some people at the Benioff um, Institute, and I think that the general, the general, the gist of it is, is that this is not really about policy recommendations. They're kind of just citing other people who actually did do that right. research on how to solve homelessness that are kind of like, here's our generic like citations and filler. Uh, they're really just diagnosing the problem in a way that is super comprehensive because previously most of the data is like an accumulation of point in time counts, which is not super accessible to people. So I think that this was actually a really good study in terms of diagnosing the actual problem. Um, I think something about the study though, uh, that actually really got a lot of attention is, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention this. Um, there's actually a really good report to not just homelessness as a housing problem, um, but there is a really good report by California EMB that was released in like December 2022 that talks about uh, homelessness and housing first and how it compares in places like Houston, which have actually right, reduced right. its homeless population versus here. Uh, it's, it's a much necessary report to read. I think that the most interesting part of the report to me was the ages, right? And so the breakdown in the, in the seniors who are finding themselves in homelessness now. And that's such an interesting thing because as someone who's researched a lot about homelessness, homelessness in California is not new. Let's be very clear about that, especially not in San Francisco, especially not in the Berkeley, San Francisco, kind of Oakland area. Um, you know, we've had a people living on the streets in San Francisco since the 1960s during the like hippie era and stuff, right? It was common. Um, a lot of young people were doing that. But what we saw is that like since the 70s onwards, the decline of SROs, the decline of welfare programs being accessible, right? So that's the reaction against the war on poverty by LBJ. People, conservatives right. said, oh, these people are getting handouts. Let's make it super hard to get public services. Um, and the increased uh, housing shortage have resulted in a population of homeless people um, that are not just like young people that are just street living, but are actually people who are homeless because of housing situations, housing woes. And the ages really struck out to me. I mean, the senior homeless population in California has grown by 7% in the last couple of years. And it's, it's, if you look at a lot of homeless encampments, it's mostly older folks. I know. And, I've noticed that too. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's actually quite heartbreaking, you know, in a way that seems very unique. It's uh, there's a lot of old people in there, a lot of, you know, and this, I don't mean to like, I didn't mean to like downgrade the race and equity part of it, which is, you know, like the people that I see generally who are older are generally older black people in encampments, you know? Right. Um, so like if, if we pull up the, like the breakdown of that, you know, we're looking at like 35% of the homeless are Latinos uh, 26% are black and 12% are native American. Right. So yeah. that's, that's totally out of sync with their actual California population. Not um, Latinos, but yeah, with black. I'm oh, sorry, not Latinos. Native, it's yeah, blacks and black native, and native Americans. American. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, that's, that's really important too, but I mean, that's, that's symptomatic of the overall problem, which is that these income groups just make the least amount of money. So right. it, it's totally predictable that they would disproportionately be homeless. I think going back to the senior thing, 
we have a major problem with like pensions and social security in this country um, and Medicare. I think that this is something that is huge, right? Like seniors are basically losing out on services if they don't so many seniors if they don't have retirement if they haven't were if they weren't able to pay taxes um they're not getting their social security um social security is not even that useful for a lot of seniors we're running into a problem and then now we're running into social security being defunded and not getting the, right. the money it needs because they have that stupid income ceiling on it to where we can't tax people for social security that make more than like what is it like 160k um a year so this is the problem that we're facing where when people are old and no longer able to work they basically don't have any option besides homelessness unless they're getting a good pension or they got social security really racked up and that's another really important point too is disabilities i've long said this in this country and especially in california where housing costs are high but almost anywhere if you're disabled and you have a severe disability that impairs you from working your life is screwed here you're you're so destined to be homeless and that's not even a california problem that's a that's an everywhere problem and the only difference between people who are not homeless and people who are homeless that have that are that have a severe disability is usually their amount of family support right. which of course goes down with income right so mm -hmm. um that is that is major and i'm that is something that housing first can address but we should also address the other ecosystem of problems here which is we need to fund social security to keep homeless people um, to keep seniors from becoming homeless and the disability, the right to work for people that are disabled and also pensions and uh, uh, welfare services for people that are disabled, including some kind of basic income is a must unless that's going to just continue to be the same way forever and ever, ever. Yeah, seniors the, and disabled, the most predictable homeless population. The age of the, the median age of the participants is uh, in the study was 47, you know, um, I think that's older than most people. That's older than me, you know, and um, I think that uh, the age range was 18 to 89, right? Just imagine 89 year old person who is homeless. But um, I don't know. I, I, I've noticed that myself. And I think that it kind of throws a lot of these arguments out of the, out of the, you know, like it, it just makes it feel much more dire in a way. And it also makes it seem like older people, like if you could provide them a type of housing that perhaps it'd be fine. The other number though, was that it seemed like the median amount of time in which people had been homeless was two years. Right. And so like, that's also longer and makes it seem like the problem is more trenchant than, than people would like to believe, which is that like a lot of people became hooked off like a new form of meth. And then they suddenly became homeless and started screaming in a Whole Foods, right? Like that's that's a type of narrative that like Schellenberger is trying to put out there that has gotten a lot of of narrative. And I I agree with you that none of this matters, like in terms of convincing those people, right? Like it doesn't matter. Like they'll point to the London Breed statistic that only eight percent of people who are arrested for drug crimes in the Tenderloin were from San Francisco, and they'll say, yeah, we're talking about different populations. That's actually something I wanted to talk to you about, which is like I was like. I do think that like the problem here in some ways is that people are talking about two separate types of homeless populations, right? Like the housing first people, people like yourself, the Yimbies, uh, the people who are talking about housing affordability are talking about how do we stop homelessness from happening, right? How do we help the majority of people who are of these 117,000 people? Like how do we get them into a place where they have shelter and where they we can sort of uh, attend to them with the services that they need in a more stable place if they are people who are having severe mental health and uh, or drug problems. And then there's like 
people who are just mad at the encampments, you know, and that their entire scope of what is the homeless problem is just the encampments, right? And you and I both know that the people in encampments in the Tenderloin are only a small portion of the state's homeless problem. But I think that like the people who are mad about encampments don't really care about the rest of of everything, right? But and it's weird that everything gets talked about with the same word. It's almost like we should come up with a different term or something like that. So at least there's some clarity there. I mean, yeah, it, it, it gets even more like abstract than that, right? Like the the homeless populations are so different, not just in terms of shelter or unsheltered. Um, people who live in like housing unstable situations, for example, that are not technically homeless, not even technically sheltered homeless, um, I would consider to be in just as much dire straits as a lot of homeless people are. So that's actually a really interesting thing about the report too. Um, many of the headlines focused on the fact that a lot of the homeless people uh, became homeless over like rent. And while right. this does tangentially relate to rent, no question about it, if you actually look at the report, the number one cause of, or the most prominent cause of people losing housing um, was actually social issues. Um, it was about 63% uh, versus 58% for uh, people who lost it over economic issues. Right, so right. The, that... the biggest pool was social issues. And of that pool of social issues, the most prominent ones were people having disputes with their housemates and people who didn't have enough uh, space in their housing. Yeah, yeah, that was interesting to me, too. I actually felt like some of those statistics actually went against some of the conclusions that were being headlined, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was like, like, it was like, uh, what did they say? Like, some only a certain percentage of people were people who had been evicted, right? And then within, I think it was something like 42% of people who weren't uh, on a lease, right? Like, that's how they distinguish it between people who had been, you know, people who were leaseholders who or homeowners who were paying a mortgage who couldn't afford to pay it anymore and they became homeless. That's actually not most people, right? Like, uh, yeah, that wasn't most. Right, right. And so then that I felt like that kind of cut against some of their conclusions a bit and maybe it will embolden some of the other people. But like, who knows? You know, I saw that like well, Andy Bales, for example, is very excited about Andy Bales, for those who don't know, is sort of the preacher who lives in Skid Row. And he's very focused on like helping people get like he's like a very drug and mental health, but he does it through like a ministry type of thing. He was very excited about this report, for example. Right. And I think that I was trying to figure out why he would be so excited about it. And I think it's because, you know, the report showed, for example, like 80% of people said that they suffer from severe mental illness, you know, or mental health problems Um, that 30% are, you know, say that they are habitual users of methamphetamines, for example. Right. And that kind of helps bolster their narrative. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think like sort of what people take out of this is you know, what they're going to take out of this. But yeah, I agree yeah. with you. It wasn't exactly saying everyone who's homeless was because they like could have used three hundred more dollars to pay rent one month. And then now they're you know, now they're homeless. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, all these things do relate back to rent and that if housing was affordable and accessible, then a lot of the social problems they were dealing with would not actually right. be problems. Right. Um, but to be clear, like if you look on page 37 of the actual report, 63% uh, lost housing because of social issues compared to 47%. And of course, a lot of these overlapped, but still they overlap, 47% yeah. for economic reasons. And then of the economic reasons, which was, you know, about 10 percentage points less, um, you know, like 22%, uh, 12% um, were 
and and maybe about 16% more were actually the result of housing costs and other things were the products of like in- income or, right. or whatnot. Um, if you if you look at the social issues, though, yeah, conflict among residents, you know, just didn't have enough space. And I think that that's really important, too, because one of the points I make is that if you look at places like Los Angeles, which lead the nation in overcrowded households, that is that has tremendous social and mental health impacts on people. And I'm speaking as somebody who kind of had been in that situation before, where you're crammed in a housing unit with another person and you do not have the space. Um, they can really drive a lot of people nuts. And that's usually a product of not being able to have rent, but that means you're in a really housing unstable situation. So even LA's homeless population, the official count really underscores, or sorry, undercounts the amount of people who are in like housing unstable situations about, what is it, more than a 10th of LA households live in um, overcrowded situations. Like it's, these are all people that I think are just as needing of housing as uh, the actual people out on the streets are. And I will, I wish that that was emphasized more because the overcrowding data gets completely dismissed. I feel like in mainstream media narratives, like you don't really hear a lot about it, but like it was huge in COVID in terms of people getting COVID. It was huge in COVID in terms of people having mental health problems. And this report also confirms it's huge in terms of people um, becoming homeless. And so, yeah, I think that when we talk, when people say statements like, oh, we already have enough housing, it's like, actually, we don't look at the people in housing that they don't even have space to live where they are. Right. It's interesting. They don't differentiate between housing at all. Right. Like it's uh, I don't know. You just have to been around a little bit to notice some of this stuff here in the state. Right. If you go to East Palo Alto, for example, you'll notice that people are living in every single garage in that in East Palo Alto, basically. Yeah. Same you in know, East Oakland. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like, it's not like a, like that also counts as being housed. Right. And like, obviously that is not the same as having one's own apartment or one's own bedroom or anything like that. And that, that is a much more precarious space. And they didn't, they didn't really distinguish in the report, like people who came out of those types of, those types of like how, like pretty unstable housing situations. Right. Yeah, they didn't. Um, Right. But it seems like kind of that a lot of people did because they said for people who are not paying rent or I'm sorry, for the people who weren't, leaseholders, for example, that would be, you know, if you live in a garage, you're not going to be a leaseholder for that, for that house, uh, that the median monthly rent was $450, right? So for California, that's like pretty low. And so I would imagine that a lot of them are like people living in people's bedrooms or living in people's garages and stuff like that. And that, um, yeah, you're right. That wasn't really highlighted very much. I think it was, maybe they just like didn't have enough respondents or something to like differentiate between them or maybe it's a hard narrative to explain. Right. It's a really hard narrative to explain it having because it, it ties a lot into like vacant housing. And of course, in the homelessness is a housing problem book, they point out the huge correlations between the amount of vacant housing available and the amount of homelessness. That's why we don't see very many homelessness in places like West Virginia. Um, but at the same time, it's like it's hard to explain to people that people move and people yeah. need to get out of certain situations. For example, a very common cause of homelessness among women is domestic violence. And you see this in this report too, where like, what is it? Half of cis women and 74% of trans women have been sexually abused, right? Those are situations that are gonna get people to leave. And usually we don't have housing for them to, to move into. That's right. a problem. Right. right, they have, I mean, at the very best, they have like some sort of shelter. Um, you know, I, I have like, you know, I wanted to ask you something in terms of, I wanted to theorize something in, 
and just presented in front of you, which I think is sure, part right. of what's happening right now. The New York Times wrote an article a couple of weeks ago and it said, or published an article a couple of weeks ago that was about housing first and how it's become a point of attack amongst Republicans, right? Because housing first in terms of the federal government has been around for 20 years. Uh, Bush administration, Obama administration, it was the, it's been, you know, it's the official way in which people respond to these things. In California, it's been enshrined in the law since 2016, and that uh, housing first, you know, I think that I generally am a supporter of housing first as well. I think we need much more housing in these areas. But I do think that like the one way in which it is having a bit of a problem right now and the reason why it's become something that is easy for the right to sort of pillory or to like uh, attack is because I do think at some levels it's hard to fit the timeline of a housing first type of solution into the immediacy that people feel when they see an encampment or they see somebody having a breakdown on the street or something like that, right? If the response is basically just like, we need to build more housing so that in 20 years or 30 years, we're going to have more affordable housing because of, you know, or or we're going to build affordable housing in these in these specific places and we're going to put people there that people are just like, okay, like how long is that going to take? And what are you going to do about these people who are like making it impossible for me to walk my daughter to her elementary school? Right. And that I do think that's an actual problem with housing first. You oh, no, know? it's not, like, it's not only think, an actual problem right. in uh, so suburbia. It's an actual problem right. in the urban core. I mean, Berkeley, which has been pumping out lots and lots of low income subsidized units, mostly from taxpayers, Berkeley voted down a major tax to keep that funding going. Um, right recently so i mean it, no it absolutely is a real problem yeah because i think i thought about it just because like i take my daughter to go skateboarding um you know where the skateboard park is here in town it's near that big There's brewery a few, huh? yeah the, oh, the one, one in the one in west berkeley yeah, yeah, yeah I west know where it is. berkeley yeah and it's uh you know it is to the rvs next yeah. to a rather sizable homeless encampment right and that um that the that as during the years in which I've taken my daughter to the skate park, that encampment has grown, even though it's starting to shrink a little bit. But, you know, it used to be that the encampment was a block away from the skate park. And now there are tents on the skate, like next to the skate park, like right against the fence. Right. And yeah. that I imagine that, like, I think about it because, you know, like I want my kid to be safe. And so I just say, hey, just don't bother the people in the tents, right? And it's it's not a question of whether the people in the tents are going to do anything to my daughter. I don't think they will, you know, but I also think like there is like a way in which people deal with encampments, which is just like, I think the polite thing to do is to just not bother the people in there. You know, you don't want like a six-year-old poking her head in there, right? Um, and I think about it and I'm like, okay, well, you know, Berkeley definitely needs more housing, right? And it's very difficult, but I think that more housing is going to be built in the city. And I think the price of rent will eventually come down. Right. But like, we it have doesn't answer, showing it's actually coming down. It doesn't, it doesn't answer the question that people might have or that other parents might have who are also sending their kids to these skate parks of like, what the fuck are you going to do about that tent? (laughs) You're going to talk about like building some multi, you're going to build housing on the North Berkeley BART and like, it's going to cost this much in rent these people. And then it's going to open up units in like five years. Cause like, you know, like there's going to be more affordable units because the supply is up. Like there's like this timeline problem, right. In terms of the immediacy of, of the problem and the visceral way that people feel about it. And I just like, you know, as somebody, you are somebody who is, you know, obviously has a lot of roots within this Yimby movement. Like, how do you, how do you respond to like a, you know, how do you respond to that? 
So here's the unpopular answer. Um, the one that I'm sure a lot of people have tried, a lot of conservatives have probably tried to fish out of liberals and they've been a little bit reluctant to answer. Um, the truth is, is that there is no tomorrow removement of the uh, removal of the encampments. Um, we just can't do it. I mean, you can sweep them and then they just move somewhere else, I guess. Right, right, um, right. But like, realistically speaking, the the housing crisis in California, especially in the Bay Area, was 50 years in the making. Um, it doesn't have to take 50 years to resolve. But it, I mean, the fact that it is so hard to do it. So, so let's be clear. Housing first doesn't mean housing only. I know you know that. But I like, know that yeah. a lot of people yeah. don't don't realize that when they hear housing first, they think housing only. Right. Again, I've worked in property management with low income housing providers. Um, you cannot take a homeless person that's been chronically homeless out on the street. That's got a drug addiction problem, which, by the way, what is it like? Sixty five percent of homeless people in that survey have used like illicit drugs. Sixty two percent were alcoholics. Um, you can't just throw them into a housing unit and the problem gets fixed tomorrow. It's going to take a lot of social workers. It's going to take a lot of rehab. It's going to take a lot of rules that aren't super popular with some lefties. Um, it's going to take a lot of like rehabilitation. It's really hard to do, but that it takes time. It would be a lot easier if we could get those, especially with all that federal aid money we got from during uh, COVID, to get a lot of like uh, declining motels and commercial spaces into housing. Um, the Project Room Key was a huge success and Home Key, huge successes. Right. We should have gone nuts on that. But every single time, even in Berkeley, you, you talk about that neighborhood in West Berkeley, that there was the controversial Golden Bears Inn project where um, you know the local Yimby group tried to get an old motel converted into homeless housing. And the neighbors that were busy opposing North Berkeley BART housing were also fighting that project too. This is, and, But of course, we won. We convinced them to do it. It took a, a strong council member to say, actually, I'm not going to buy into the fear mongering. We're going to turn it into housing and it'll be good. But like I'm here in Fremont, we have a similar problem with a uh, declining motel a few blocks away and all the comments are just negative. This is crime. This is going to ruin everything. And it's like, I don't know, like if you if you make it super hard to build easy housing for these people, easy shelter space so they can start their recovery, how's anything going to get solved? You can't fix drug addiction and alcoholism living in a tent. Yeah, like right. that, doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. It, it's not going to work. Um, so, I mean, as long as people fight that, then nothing's going to happen. And I feel like unless we change the attitudes or at least fix the, the way in which we get homeless housing approved, um, the inevitable result will be people will just sweep these encampments out. And the sweeps, like you said, don't do like they, that part. Like, I wish that more people would look at the evidence, you know, a little bit, because when I talk to some people around town who are mad about this problem, you know, I don't think these are bad people. These are all people like these people would never even dream of voting for, you know, Ron DeSantis, much less like, yeah, they're not, you know, none of them are bad. People. Like Donald Trump. These are liberals. These are progressive liberals. If AOC was running for president, they would vote for AOC, you know? But like they're mad about this issue and they feel like, you know, sweeps have to be part of the solution. Like, I do wish like there was more evidence about, you know, that they would look at some of the evidence about how little this type of stuff works. Because unless you're willing to hold these people in prison for years, you know, which is something that these people would never support. Right. That uh, they're just going to go somewhere else because they have nowhere else to go. Right. Like, that's the problem. And so, like, fine, you've swept them out of the you know skate park in west berkeley like most likely they're just gonna come right back to the skate park in west berkeley yeah they'll right? just go and, a block down 
Yeah, or three blocks down or they'll do something and at some point the cops will give up and everybody will give up and like they'll just be there. And so like it's kind of pointless, right? Like there's nowhere to if there's nowhere to put people like they're just going to go somewhere and you can't do stuff like do you did you read this story, this amazing story in San Rafael about how uh, they were they they were picking people up, homeless people up and putting them in or they picked up a guy in San Rafael. No, the cop drove him across the Golden Gate oh, Bridge. Yeah. yeah, and ditched yeah. him in San Francisco. And then somebody fi- video recorded this. And then San Rafael's official position is this is the only time this has ever happened. I'm like, oh, yo, okay, you know, the only time that you ever did this happened to be the time when someone was just filming outside of their house on a phone, right? Like, like- and, and, and by the way, that 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 uh, big RV encampment in West Berkeley by the kids skate park, a lot of that grew after Albany kicked their homeless out as well. Like, okay, directly. so that's where we're yeah. like, right, right, yeah. right. And that Albany, for those who are not familiar with uh, the this area, Albany is like the tiny appendage next to berkeley right it's like it's like ten thousand people or something like that it's basically just part of berkeley it just has its own it's a little unofficial berkeley neighborhood right right so it's uh that's uh i don't know i i i kind of agree with you where i just feel like you know like i wish there was a way in which to get put out a message like we're not gonna solve that homeless encampment anytime soon you know but here's a way in which we can do it but like it's diff yeah it is diff like for example like what was the big victory around here which was that like they were able to get almost everybody who was living in um in people's park to not live in people's park and a lot of them were put into like temporary housing in some sort of way right um people's park is a little weird because it's a it's right. a fringe issue but sure go ahead it, it right, is right, right, the model right. of it's interesting yeah right but now it's like you know it's 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 just hard you're gonna have some leakage you're never gonna get the place completely cleared right and that you have to just do the best that you can do and that we should all pull together to try, try and get this done but it just seems impossible you know like yeah like okay here's the thing people do like to point to the fringe example so let's just use people's park as an example and i'm only using it it's a really weird issue with like 15 different factions that all are kind of wild and crazy okay but like putting aside the politics of the park let's just use it as an example of a housing first model in which the city government paid for along with the uc a bunch of homeless housing to be built on a parcel um, and basically paid for the residents there to move into a city-owned hotel for the duration of construction. Okay. Um, There were like a small, tiny number of people who were like, I'm not going to go. I don't want to go, whatever. The vast majority of the people in the park said, yeah, get me housing. Duh. I'm going to move and go to the hotel. I think the media does like to focus on these people um, because they 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 are the convenient refuse services group that they're always looking for um but i i do think that they're extremely fringe and the vast majority of homeless people would just accept services if it was given oh yeah for sure i mean that was one thing i think like okay so one of the things that was put out in the study which it should not be a surprise to anyone who has studied this is that 89% of people said that housing costs are a problem to re-entering permanent housing, but that they wanted housing, right? And that there is this narrative out there of the refused services people. They do exist, right? 11% is not an insignificant number of people, but it is by far from the vast majority of people. You know, like that, 
that myth of all of them, I think is the most important one to dispel. And I, I agree with you still that like, I don't think many people will listen, but I hope that they will in the sense that like, look, if you provide people with some sort of shelter where they have a private room, like the majority of these people are going to go into that type of place, right? Like the service resistant thing, I think is the most pernicious myth um, outside of the nobody's from California type of thing. Because And actually, it's much more pernicious than that, because what it does is basically say, well, nothing's going to help these people. You can build all the housing you want. They actually like living in the encampment, right? And like, yeah. It's the stupidest thing in the world. I used to write software for wait lists and affordable housing developers. And for like, I remember it was like 40 units in Emeryville had 11,000 people apply. Like the idea that like, oh, no one wants this stuff. We're going to build. It's not going to change anything. That's not true. Um, I I did think that something that was like, um, something that's kind of funny to me um, is, and, and even you've done it a little bit, is the but the San Francisco progressives love to do it. Everybody loves to do it. It's like the, the sort of the tech bro being the like obstacle to like housing first narratives that we have this like reactionary tech force in San Francisco. And I'm not disputing that there's a lot of like major, and we all know that rank and file tech workers are Democrats and liberals and whatever. And that, that these are like weird blowhards on Twitter. Um, but in my experience in San Francisco with like actual homeless housing and stuff, the, the, the big obstacle demographics and groups are not tech people. It's like your rank and file homeowner in San Francisco that doesn't want homeless housing near them. When they killed homeless housing in Forest Hill, a wealthy white neighborhood years ago, because the white property owners didn't want it there, that very controversial um, Tenderloin neighborhood clinic homeless housing project in the Sunset District was mostly opposed by homeowners, many of whom were Chinese Americans. Like this is what the average projects look like. I, I know the tech bro thing, it, it, people like it because it's kind of convenient and, and no one likes tech bros, right, right, but like right. it's really your average people. And I mean, it's not even a racial thing. I've seen projects in like East Oakland, for example, where like everything there is subsidized housing being built. And there's a lot of like black homeowners who are like, I mean, okay, this feels like ghettos. This feels like redlining. You know, people feel, I mean, Berkeley homeowners sued famously in the 80s to stop public housing from being built in South and West Berkeley, went all the way up to the Supreme Court. This is what the average kind of face of people opposed to these projects looks oh, yeah. like, yeah, um, because, as much as we right. hate the tech bros and everything. Yeah, no, no, um, I agree with you. It's not that the tech bros are not necessarily the problem here. The problem is the California homeowner, right? Um, and the it's not just California. Nobody in any state who lives in a neighborhood wants a gigantic homeless shelter built in their neighborhood like i'm sorry it's just a fact of life you know like um you can call them bad people or whatever but you're just gonna keep like that is it's always gonna be a fight to get something in there regardless of what the neighborhood is right like that's just the truth of it and people who work in this space really do understand that but yeah what 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 was this what was the next thing you were gonna go on to and then we can wrap up um i think that I'm frustrated with the encampments. I'm frustrated that no matter a lot of the money we pour in in terms of taxes that, yeah, we see marginal reductions here and there, but we're not seeing anything fixed. And I think that the real reason why is because of the inaction of the federal government. Um, The fact that California taxpayers send a large portion of our incomes to the federal government and HUD basically does nothing now in terms of reducing homelessness is incredible. Um, So, so much, so much public housing could be built. It could get a lot of these shelters fixed tomorrow. This was like 
Teddy Roosevelt was around or something. Uh, it was the Eisenhower days. <laughs> this was the mid 20th century. They would have thrown up some public housing towers and the shelters would have been, I mean, and, right. and the encampments would have been gone tomorrow. Now we've, uh, since Reagan, well, well, really public housing stopped getting built under Nixon and then Reagan turned it into a voucher program. And ever since then, we have been like, total inaction by the federal government as homelessness has risen. And that's really where we should be blaming our, uh, that's where we should be putting our focus and our anger. Because while it is also true that California's housing crisis is particularly acute, homelessness is also becoming a national problem. It's not just a California problem. And it's because of the inaction of the federal government. HUD doesn't do anything anymore. It, it doesn't do its job. So, I mean, this is something that really frustrates me. Like I pay so much of my money to, like, I'm about to go file my taxes and it's like, what? This isn't going to go to public housing. Like this isn't going to solve a lot of the problems in my immediate community, and I think that's something that needs that that we could redirect anger uh, anger by residents towards rather than blaming it on. And while the nonprofit sector has many problems on all these issues, rather than blaming it on localities and everything, focus on the fact that our federal government doesn't fund any low income housing. Or, or does it through like federal tax credits that are super? Well, they do give vouchers. Yeah, I mean they give vouchers. Uh, they give vouchers, uh, right. but like, while vouchers are good, like it's also just a big subsidy to landlords, right? You're having a housing constrained areas that don't have enough money, and we're like, oh, let's give people more purchasing power. I agree that that's helpful, but it wouldn't be as helpful as say building a lot of public housing, which these people right. could do if we just got serious about it. But that, yeah, I. I just like, I don't know. That's also like one of those things that feels like so difficult to, you know, and such a long-term solution. I don't know. I, 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 I'm a big supporter of public housing. I think it's anyone who listens to this podcast understands and that like, you know, I think it's the only solution at this point, right. That there needs to be a ton of it built in the state, but man, it's, it's like a tough road. Right. And it's, the immediacy problem, I just think, I don't know, I've basically given up on it, right? Like, it's not that I think that people should despair and that they shouldn't try and do things. But, you know, the idea that there's some sort of quick solution here seems to be growing less and less possible, or at least if there is, then I don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> you know? like, I, I will I say, no I, I will say as a very kind of quick solution, the hotel housing conversions are so good. We got so many declining motels. Let your cities just buy those motels. Just get them and then put the homeless into them. And then a lot of the encampments will disappear in a couple of days. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of the high profile ones, like just, just get these motels into housing. That's something that's just so common sense. Right. Is the is the one that we, you were talking about, the one, um, the Bear Inn or whatever, Golden Bear Inn, is that one, is, it, is that at capacity yet? Like, is it full? Oh, yeah, it's filled. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like, uh, that happened quite quickly. You know, actually, my friend, our old podcast host, Andy Lou, when he was here in town a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago, stayed at that place, you know, and then... And then, and then, like two months later, it was being taken over by the city. So I texted it to him. I was like, "Handy, the hotel you're in." Isn't yeah, that yeah. great though? When you have pro housing electeds that are like, "I'm just going to ignore the NIMBYs and do what's right because I know right. in the end it'll be good for everyone." Like that's that actually happened because we had electeds in there um, that actually prioritized that. Um, in the old days in Berkeley, in the '90s, they did those hotel conversions. Those took years. Yeah, it was very quick, and it was. Uh, it, I don't know. It's like. 
I remember the guy who owns a pizza parlor next to it was pretty upset about it. And he said, but I haven't, you know, I drive by that intersection almost every single day and I'd spent a lot of time in that area and I have not noticed a single thing different from a year and a half ago, you know? And so you know, I think that delayed the, some of the fears there. The pizza parlor guy was particularly interesting because um, he came out as a no, his whole family owns it, immigrant family. Right. And, um, we had two options. You know, the Yimbies could have done our usual name and shame thing that we love to do. Um, but I think that the North Berkeley now Yimbies said, no, we're, these are, it's understandable that, you know, they just oh, might have sure. these preconceptions. Yeah. Yeah. And what we did instead was, is we actually all threw a Yimby party at the pizzeria. Um, elected officials came and everybody came and we're like, we're going to support you, buddy. Don't worry. Like this is a community. And if problems do arise, we'll be there to support you. But guess what? This is actually going to be very good for the community. And the pizzeria switched from a no to a yes. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. I, I hope that the, the hotel stuff does really work and it's a relatively quick way to do it. And I do think maybe, I always wonder like what I agree with you, Daryl, that like this is a long standing problem and that it's been going on for a long time. But I will say, you know, I have the perspective of having lived in the Bay Area for a very long time in my 20s and then leaving for 10 years and then coming back, you know, and then like it is way worse in a visible sense. Right. Like when you walk around, like you said, right, when you went to Civic Center Bart, for example, Civic Center Bart was never a pleasant place. Right. Like going um it was similar to going to like for example i i remember when i was like i think i was 19 years old or something and i went to i've came to san francisco for a summer and i got off bart at 16th street you know and in the mission and you know if people who don't know like that's always been an area with a lot of drug use and a lot of people who are sort of hanging around the bart stop the mcdonald's across the street from the six is very famous for having you know i don't know like people use drugs in there that you would not expect people to use in public. And, you know, it's shocking to me as like a 19 year old to see that, right. Because I had been to a lot of different cities or whatever. I lived in a lot of different places and I had never seen something quite like that. And I think that a lot of the Bay area now is sort of dealing with stuff like that, where people are shocked, right? Like they're, and then they do feel a visceral type of reaction. And it, it has expanded quite a bit. I wonder if there's like a, threshold level you know where like people where the emotional part of it recedes a little bit um if you walk around the tenderloin right now it's bad you know like people who say it's like yeah. oh it's it's like they're lying like they're lying to you and i don't i actually think even like the create the most like absurd people have sort of given up on that i was in i had walked around skid row about nine months ago it's bad you know it's bad and so uh I don't know. It's it's like, it's and it just, doesn't do progressives any good to pretend it's not bad. Yeah, I've never understood that position. You know, like or like, or to pretend know, that it's a bit of an exaggeration. It's not. That stuff no, is like bad. wild. Yeah. I used to take Bart to the city all the time for fun as a kid, and now I go to Market Street stations, and I'm like, uh, what the hell happened here? And I feel like it happened. I feel like it started gradually in 2017, 18, 19. And then like, I, I wasn't able to go to the city at all during the pandemic. And then when I came back, it was like, first thing I see is like guy pooping on the wall. Next thing I see right. is like 15 people with needles in their arms. That's a huge problem. Um, yeah. And we can offer actual solutions, but let's not downplay the seriousness of it because in doing so reactionaries win the day. Yeah. That's how I feel. It's just like people have eyes, man, you know? 
Like it's uh it's it's similar. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh you know like um and this is just you know not asking you for some in a housing sort of way, but like my this is just you as a concerned resident whose opinion I respect on a lot of this stuff. I feel like the property crime problem here has reached a point where it's like a real sort of inflection point because you have, you know, and it's the same thing that you, that's always true, which is that like once the crime starts reaching rich white neighborhoods, then it's like a real problem. Right. And so for example, here in North Oakland and the Rockridge area, which for those of you don't know is a very wealthy area, like, you know, um, I mean, I certainly can afford to live in Rockridge, uh, that there are people that there have been some very high profile muggings of elderly ladies, right. Who are kind of, uh, including one that was very high profile, which is, was at this very fancy kind of like grocery store type of thing that compare, you know, with the car break-ins, everything like that, it just feels like the East Bay Oakland is in this point where it's like, all right, we're going to, we have to do something about this. Right. And that's sort of mirroring San Francisco. How do you, how do you feel about that? This moment, like when it comes to crime and the crime there no i agree with you and again people downplaying it because they're anti-cop or whatever it doesn't do anybody any good to you know like i i that there was a lot of like people especially in chinatown getting mugged because they were targeted for looking weak like it absolutely was happening um and, and i mean it's true i i think that I've been kind of convinced actually by the arguments that some people have made to me, which is that the problem with like American policing is that we actually don't have enough like immediate punishments that are like small catches and, 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 and infractions or whatever. And the big problem is we rely so heavily on incarceration when people do actually get punished. I think that if people felt like there was consequences for like speeding, driving recklessly for muggings and all these like small crimes, but that they weren't like life ruining incarceration, that it would actually decrease the crime. And uh, like criminologists have shown this too, that people would be a lot less inclined to commit crime more than just like, well, you can get away with it nine times out of 10, but when you finally do get caught, um, then we, you know, you go to jail for like 20 years. And I think part of that's the problem is that policing is so expensive. Um, we, we, we actually in aggregate have fewer police officers than like much of like Europe, but our police get paid so much and they're super armed and they're very different than the policing there. I think that this is something that's really a problem with American criminal justice is the overdependency on incarceration, not enough on, I guess what you would call quote unquote community policing, but just people being around personnel, people being around, not feeling uh, uh, by themselves. And I think that when it comes to the economic issues in like Oakland, you know, these school reports to me are so crazy. The, the, the large percentage of students that are graduating that are like juniors in high school that like can't even pass literacy tests. Right. Um, and especially as they go along racial demographics, like half of black students in SFUSD are not even close to meeting satisfactory for literacy tests. We're in the information economy, right? We're an economy where you need to have a, a decent amount of technical skills to have a, a, a good life. And the fact that we're like pumping out kids that are mostly black and Latino that can't even read um, they're, they're going to be tomorrow's criminals, right? Like everyone, I, I, I argue with a lot of like crazy people on Twitter, um, who are super racist and everything. And they're always telling me, like, they point to me and I'm a black man, um, from Oakland and Berkeley who, you know, went to college, got a CS degree and doing very well. And they say, well, you're just a product of trying hard and people in your race don't try hard. But the truth of the matter is, is that like these people are let down before they even got started. Right. They don't have access to the education centers they right. need. They don't have access to tutoring. A lot of these people do not have stable households and incomes. And the byproduct is it's just a perpetual cycle of poverty. And the pandemic accelerated that. 
where I feel like the, the like there was a real distinction already growing between like the gig economy lowly worker that barely makes enough money and the well-paid engineers and founders and everything else. And now it's just, it's, it's gotten so vast, oh, yeah. especially no, as people it's... do remote work now that yeah. the crime stuff has just increased. And a lot of kids haven't been in school because of the pandemic. So now they're out on the streets. Saddest thing I've ever seen was like a video camera, a, a film of a of a little black boy to look like you can be no older than 12 years old going into a liquor store with a gun in east oakland like what happened there he's not in school he doesn't have access to these things that all the rich kids in the hills have access to and it it i mean that's the overall problem the i don't know what to say it's not popular to say but like we have to fix those problems if we want to fix the crime problem um, because it's not rich white kids in Rock Ridge, uh, f- freaking you know, mugging people and committing crimes out on the streets and doing property crime and stealing property and packages. They don't have to. They have money to entertain themselves with. They have after school programs. They have a lot of education. It, we have a huge education problem that stems from our racial inequality in this region. And I don't know. You know that Spur report on household incomes is incredible. The, the fact that black households in san francisco basically make the same amount of money today as they made 10 years ago in the dip and the pits of the great recession like and then people are surprised that there's crime and people that just don't care about other people like if i was someone who was low income and was stuck in a substandard housing situation i probably wouldn't care that people wealthier than me were victims of property crime either like right you know right i mean and it is a lot of teenage kids right like that and it is a lot of young people um this is you know, these are the kids who are caught are like sometimes, like you said, as young as 12 years old. Right. Um, and people say, oh, well, just why don't you lock them up, you know, and send a message? And I'm like, do you really want to normal? Do you really like, hey, you know, like liberal Bay Area guy, you really want to lock up a 14 year old for like six years, you know, for property crimes? <laughs> like, like, and and the homelessness it's, it's, report said that nineteen percent right. of the homeless were people who came out of jail and prison that had like right. no services whatsoever to get right. back into right. housing. Right. That's a very and like it's uh I don't know I I the reason why I ask is because I worry sometimes or I worry right now that there's going to be a lot of flight from you know like not wealthy people I'm talking about like sort of upper middle class type of flight from the area you know and they're not going to go to Orinda you know they're not going to go to Lafayette. Like they're going to go like, like they're, they're going to just go somewhere else in the country, right? They're going to, they're going to leave this area. And I think that's something, the, especially in a place like Oakland, where you do have this crisis in the public school system, and then you have this property crime, and you have an extremely high cost of living, right? Some people are just going to be like, I don't know, I work from home anyway. Why don't I just go move to like anywhere else that's way, way cheaper than here, you know, anywhere else, literally, buy a nicer place, you know, buy myself like a Tesla and send my kids to like a suburban school district, right? Like somewhere else. Like, I don't know, like it's really like sort of preoccupying my mind in terms of like my concerns about this area, because like, you don't want that to happen. You don't want like mass white flight out of these areas, right? Like, I mean, like that's, I don't think it's going to happen though. 
I really don't, don't think, think so. it's going to happen. I think what's going to, because like the, the, if we, if that was happening, I know there's a lot made out of the population reports from San Francisco, but I mean, the real estate prices just don't follow it. I think what realistically is going to happen is that these communities, we're just going to get another period of like nineties hyper incarceration. Like all the people that did their policing reform stuff in 2020 have all like backtracked and flipped on it by now. Oh, and, yeah, and, it's and, amazing. And, yeah, and to you're watch. seeing, yeah. yeah, and you're seeing very little. Like, I mean, now many progressives are like, yeah, it's probably time to hire more cops. Yeah, or, or they'll just be quiet about it. But like, you're gonna see. I think a lot of this crime's gonna get cracked down on with a lot of just like back to basics, like 90s style policing. But they can't find. Like, it's hard to to hire enough police officers right now. And so I think actually, I do think some of what you're going to say, I've actually seen it happening and it's sort of taking this almost like dystopian form of, I mean, Berkeley just approved a bunch of security cameras, right? Um, I think it's going to be kind of like a surveillance state in a lot of these neighborhoods, right? Like my friend, for example, recently, he lives in a pretty wealthy neighborhood in Oakland and they had this horrific incident where a nanny was walking a baby and some kids jumped out of a car and mugged her, fired a bullet in the ground and the bullet shards hit the baby. The baby lived, but you know, I mean, that's a terrible thing to happen. And the neighborhood's all up in arms and they're going to put in a bunch of private security cameras and, you know, they're probably going to at some point hire private security. Right. And so like, it's because nobody trusts that OPD is going to have enough officers, nor do they trust that OPD is going to do anything. It's interesting. It seems like private security is going to be like a large part of this too. Oh, I kind of felt that was coming. The South Africanization of policing in the United States. Right. I, I absolutely saw that. Cause like the thing, like, I don't know, I had my critiques of like police abolition and stuff. Like I agree with the overall point of like removing systemic issues that cause people to go into crime. But I was kind of like, we're going a little too far by saying that like never, ever, 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 ever should you have like state authority cracking down on issues. And it's like, right. I, I can envision this being this like backlash where like everybody now resorts to like private security which has even less accountability than police departments and then that's what's absolutely going to happen i mean you saw it with the banco brown murder in san francisco right, right? like right, walgreens right. hiring private security to get guns to deal with people stealing and i mean like they shoot and kill people take away their lives that's going to happen yeah. so well that was a that's that that was the big takeaway from that encounter was why did the security guard have a gun you know to deal with yeah. uh, shoplifting um that but you know that's that's it's all legal and according to san francisco it's all above board right um at this point okay all right uh thanks for coming on the show man um this is yeah. like a fun conversation even if it was a bit sprawling that's my fault because i was like i don't know we'll just talk about the report. got hella sad at the end unfortunately but yeah this thing is depressing the shit out of me i'm in like a very negative like i don't know i feel like Maybe I just spent too much time on Nextdoor. You know, people are like, you got to get off Twitter. And I'm like, listen, Twitter, compared to Nextdoor, it's like a Twitter is like a <laughs> heaven, you know? But yeah. the crime stuff is just like, it's just. It's it's not good. And there's no point not in denying good. it. I mean, it's not. you know where I live. I live like in a very secluded area part of Berkeley that has never, ever. And like, you know, all the cars on the block on our block and then the surrounding blocks in the last few weeks have had their windows smashed out, you know, and it's like, people are mad now, you know? And it's like, as much as people want to say something, it's like, it's not pleasant to walk outside and just see shattered glass everywhere. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up have like a 75 year old woman being mugged like at 2 PM on like a busy street. And it's, 
people are going to respond in some sort of way. And it's like, that part is what's scary to me is like, you know, like there's no, like, you can't stop that once it's started, you know? And it seems like we're like pretty far into the, into it having started. That's why, that's why I get kind of depressed about it. No, I get it. it. I mean, to some degree, I kind of feel like, I feel like to some degree it's like, well, now those rich folks in the Hills know what I had to grow up dealing with in East Oakland for years, shattered glass (laughs) on the streets, shootings, and OPD never showed up. I didn't even know what cops look like until I moved to Berkeley. Uh, So, I mean, they don't care. I I don't know what's going to happen though. I mean, I I think it'll probably just be a very pro-incarceral backlash, which will give short-term benefits and I think long-term problems. But I mean, that's how it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. My the real question is just like, how do you get enough? Uh, if you want a pro carceral backlash, which I personally do not, but like, you know, I it let's say put ourselves in the position of, of uh, somebody who does. What do you, how, you know, Oakland is facing a budget crisis. They have to cut back. They already tried to give all the cops signing bonuses. They still can't fill OPD, you know, like who in their right mind wants to be an Oakland police officer? These For days? real, <laughs> I never so take when, that job. Yeah, hey. when people are like, "Hey, why don't they just hire more cops?" Like they've been trying, man. You know, they just can't do it. Nobody wants to do this job anymore. And if you want to say that's because of 2020 and defund the police and because of Black Lives Matter, sure. Even if I grant you that, that does not solve the problem that you still. It's actually fund. because of state funding. Yeah. It's because the state right. puts all its money in penitentiaries instead of local communities safety right. that's why that, right. that's actually that's actually really what it is um but no you're you're absolutely right. but even right. if you believe that you're just complaining you're not actually solving the problem <laughs> in the way that you want to solve it you know you're just like well it's their fault you're like okay but like just answer the question of like let's say you want more cops where are they coming from you know and like that's the part where i just am like what the fuck are people going to do because i agree the short-term carceral solution thing is the is probably what's going to happen but i don't even know how they get to that you know it starts with the schools it really does these kids are not leaving school prepared they have no options but to be criminals if you in an economy where like education skills are so necessary and key this the industrial revolution is long gone I don't, I don't, I don't, I hate, I, people don't like that answer because it's not a cute answer, but like every day we're graduating new class of kids that are completely unprepared and it all breaks down along racial and income lines. The, um, the OUSD statistics are so depressing. I agree. It's super it's, depressing. It's, it really yeah, is. Yeah. It's not, it's not something that should be like, again, it's a place where like progressives tend to downplay it you know and i'm like no dudes like this is a real fucking problem you know like well to be fair i think a lot of progressives do talk about like black literacy being a problem it doesn't get a lot of mainstream press in liberal society i think that's the problem yeah all right well thanks for thanks for listening to the show we do this every week uh you know if you want to daryl do you have anything you want to plug your twitter Um, i do the thinking Yes, of course. I love people to follow my Twitter. Also, um, I do the thinking on Blue Sky. Um, But if you're actually really serious about some like homeless initiatives in your own local community and how to solve them, again, I strongly recommend going to caemb.org slash housing first and looking at the uh, December 2022 uh, report that we made that details places that have actually reduced its homeless population. I also suggest if you have relatives or friends or even you yourself or somebody who's skeptical of Housing First um, and the idea that we could build more housing to solve the housing crisis, please get the book Homelessness is a Housing Problem. Um, The data is all there if you want it. Okay, great. Um, 
if you'd like to support the show, it's five dollars a month at goodbye.substack.com or at patreon.com slash ttsgpod. If you want to email us, it's uh, time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Until next week, uh, Tammy will be back and uh, we will resume the show. Thank you. Bye.